Now, since we're here in Texas, we want to devote one entire panel to some outstanding Texas women leaders to give us some Texas perspectives on some of the issues. <laughs> to prepare for moderating the panel, I Googled Texas women. Boy. <laughs> I came up with a 1981 Hank Williams song called Texas Women, a cable TV reality show called Texas Woman, about the personal and professional lives of four Texas women, including a woman who raises bulls for the radio and a country music singer. I found a website called Great Texas Women, a book titled Texas Women, Their Histories, and lots more on Texas women. Well, we have very, very special, three very special Texas women on this panel, and I want to introduce them to you now. Our first speaker will be Senator Connie Burton of the 10th District. And I want to say that I read in the paper yesterday yeah. that um, the Fort Worth paper that the liberal feminist Wendy Davis, who previously held her seat, would not be running against her uh, this time. Ha, she knows you'd beat her. That's, That's why right. she's not That's running right. against her. Darn it. <laughs> Connie was born in Caraville was raised in a small Texas town of Banquet, where her father was the high school principal and her mother was the high school secretary. Connie attended the University of North Texas, earning her degree in marketing. She also met her husband of 30 years there, and they have two daughters. Mm -hmm. A strong pro-life advocate, Connie and her husband have worked closely with the Gladney Center for Adoption in Fort Worth, and are proud parents of two girls, now grown, who were both adopted from that place in Fort Worth. In 2014, she won her first bid for elective office, capturing Senate District 10 on a platform of prioritizing taxpayer dollars for transport, transportation, infrastructure, and education, and refocusing policy on the constitutional functions of government. She's a constitutional and civil liberties-oriented official who promotes public policy that allows for personal freedom and less government intervention in our lives, as well as free market and responsible government spending. Next, we'll hear from Brooke Rollins, the president and CEO of one of America's premier state free market think tanks, the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Under Brooke's leadership, the foundation has grown from a a small shop of less than a half a dozen employees to a major force in the national conservative and liberty movements with nearly 40 employees and a new headquarters under construction. Her vision is one of state policy as the driver of the national agenda, and she believes, as many of us do, that it is the states, and especially Texas, that will chart the course of reform and liberty that will save America. She served as Governor Rick Perry's Deputy General Counsel and later his Policy Director before she joined the foundation. She attended Texas A&M and graduated cum laude with a BS in Agricultural Development and was the first female to serve as Student Body President at Texas A&M. She graduated also with honors from the University of Texas School of Law. She has so many awards and honors to her name. She's also had extensive media appearances, not just on Fox, but all over the media. And Brooke and her husband live in Fort Worth with their four young children. Then we'll have Dr. Marlene McMillan, the mother of seven, author of multiple books and a homeschool pioneer. She has a BS from John Brown University, 
a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a Doctor of Ministry from Tyndale Theological Seminary. She will teach us how to explain where liberty comes from, what it takes to maintain it, and how to pass it on to the next generation. She has a passion for dispelling erroneous beliefs and making the subject of liberty exciting. Her books deal with culture and helping people see how language is used to deceive them and change the ways they think without them even realizing it's happening to them. And she will have some of her books uh, on sale uh, later this afternoon for those of you who might be interested. What a great panel of Texas women. Each Texas woman will speak for 15 minutes or so, and then we'll have some time for questions and discussion. Let's begin now with Senator Burton. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here today. It's an honor to be with you all, and thank you for being a part of this group. Um, I, I, I hate to say this, but I didn't know enough about Claire Luce Booth. Booth. Yes, I, I was, I'm ashamed to say that I did not, and I got on the website and read her story, and was like, I love this woman. I love her. So anyway, I'm very proud to be a part of this and, and hope to, be, to do more with you in the Definitely. future. I would love to. Yes. I just want to give you a little bit of an update. Um, um, on what we did in terms of border security for Texas. Um, it gets a little, just a little bit in the, in the weeds, a little bit, but kind of gives you an idea of what we had to do here in Texas to, to try and secure it more. It's certainly not secure, but um, it, we knew as a legislature that we had to step up and do something. And so these are kind of what we did to, to help the state of Texas this last legislative session. Um, as you all know here, we've had to deal with uh, illegal activity and undocumented people trying to come into the United States for many, many years. Um, the fence proposed by George W. Bush um, during his term was a failed attempt to keep people out, and with the current administration, obviously little has been done to adhere the, to the national immigration laws. The state of Texas, first of, all, first of all, must cooperate with the offices of the federal departments of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And with the un influx of unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors over the last couple of years, especially in the summer of 2014, we saw just how flawed the federal system is. Governor Perry, and again, this is before I was in, this, in, the, um, in the Senate, Governor Perry sent Texas National and State Guard troops to the border to help in the apprehensions of the minors and their mothers. However, our hands were tied in that they could not arrest or deport anyone coming in illegally. Instead, the federal departments were responsible for processing and moving these illegal persons coming over. So Texas absorbed 10,800 of the 102,000 children who came into the US, U.S. last year. These were mainly released to family members. The highest number, 5,500, went to live in Harris County. This, of course, had an impact on our public school system in many ways, funding, non-English speakers, education levels, and they're still required to take the Texas test, the state tests. 
With all of this, the 84th legislature knew, which is the one that I um, went into this past session, knew we had to do something about immigration in our state. In 2016 to 17 uh, biennial budget, we appropriated 800 million more dollars above the, the normal costs of the Department of Public Safety to be used on border security. We passed House Bill 11 with overwhelming support, and here are the provisions of that bill. First of all, we sustained what was called Operation Strong Safety, and that was something that was implemented by uh, Governor Perry during the interim, again, before I came into the legislature. And what that consisted of was a surge of troopers and Texas National Guard to the Rio Grande Valley. We had ground, air, and boat patrol, we added. We, um, that was all created again in June of 2014. We sent reinforcements to monitor the border and act as support to U.S. Border Patrol. The proven effects of that was we were deterring drug cartels. We decreased the amount of traffic across the border by over 25,000 apprehensions. We seized $2.3 billion in cartel drugs and 800, excuse me, 180 tons of drugs. Live tracking and bust of drug and smuggling attempts um, increased. We decreased in, in property crime by at least, excuse me, yeah, decreased in property crime by at least 10%. That was all sustained Operation Strong Safety, which was a part of what was already implemented. So with this House Bill 11, we, we continued that. In addition to that, we hired 250 new state troopers. Um, the spike in unaccompanied minors in the summer of 2014, uh, the DPA, DPS agents were being taken from other parts of the state to go to the border. So we needed to, in other words, we were taking, you know, police officers from the rest of the state. Um, we needed more uh, troopers on the border so that we could keep the, the, our public safety officers in other par parts of Texas as well. We increased overtime pay, so all officers work a 50-hour work week, which was something that they um, were happy with. Um, we obviously didn't just um, mandate that. We talked with them first. We created a new Texas Ranger company focusing on, on the border. And um, we operate the Texas Transnational Intelligence Center in Edinburgh, Texas, as well as, well as building a multi-use training facility in Hidalgo County. We've developed a reserve officer corps that can be called to service at any time. We established within the Office of the Attorney General a transnational and organized crime division with prosecution and human trafficking units. And we've also, that bill also contained harsher penalties for those engaged in illegal human trafficking. And in addition, um, we will, a report is required on the outcome of all these provisions. You know, obviously, um, illegal immigration is a huge issue here in Texas, and I will tell you, um, it, it always continues to amaze me. I mean, obviously, Tarrant County is not a border county, uh, and it is just as um, uh, big of an issue in my county here as it is down in South Texas. Um, one of the things that is so distressing for me, well, first of all, for me, it's, it's always been and always will be in a post 9-11 world, we absolutely need to know who is coming across our border. Um, those who want to harm uh, Americans, if they know that they can easily get 
through the Texas, uh, the southern border in Texas, that's what they're going to do. So it's always been more of an issue for me in, in that regard. When I got down to Austin, I was horrified, absolutely horrified to learn about um, the human trafficking element of this uh, problem. And, you know, I guess it, you, you always don't want to live in a bubble. Uh, you hope you don't, but it just continues to amaze me that we're in the year 2015 and we're talking about um, sex trafficking and those kinds of things and it's 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 a horrible horrible and the stories that you hear and so it's not just about um, illegal immigrants um, you know from Mexico there's 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 a myriad of aspects of the problems that a um, porous border um, is for Texas so it is we I, what I always say when I'm doing my town halls and around Tarrant County, because people are very, like I said, this is a very important issue to them, um, you know, they'll ask, well, you know, is it secure? And it's, absolutely it is not. It is not. This is a national, this is the federal government's job. Um, this is what they are supposed to be doing. They have really very limited, <laughs> it's amazing the world we live in, isn't it, in terms of, of um, of um, our politics because the national government is supposed, that is what they're supposed to do, is secure our borders. And, and uh, it's the one thing that they're not doing. Uh, and they're doing far too, mu too, too many other things. Um, so anyway, um, it is not secure, but we felt it that we did as much as we could with the funds that we had available because we do believe that we should um, protect Texans. And we felt like closing or doing as much as we could on the border um, um, you know, was part of our responsibility to Texans. So um, that's just to kind of give you a, a little bit of an in-depth uh, look at what we did in terms of border security and why it is important to us. Um, obviously, there are many other issues that, that we dealt with down there, but I just kind of wanted to give you an overview of immigration and, and our immigration policy. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Well, first let me say, my name is Brooke Rollins, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today. I, uh, I live here in Fort Worth with Connie, who's my state senator. I certainly traded up in the last election, no question about that. Uh, but she is such a warrior for freedom and for liberty, and, you know, she is exactly what I think we all would hope to be, in that she was an activist and someone that cared so deeply about her state and her country and spent a good part of her life uh, helping others get elected, the right people, and then decided that she wanted to do even more and stepped up having never really run for political office, had you, Connie? No. And, um, and kind of came out of nowhere, uh, at least to the establishment, and, um, and ran away with the race. So I'm so proud of her and, and more importantly what she stands for, which is that anyone in the community that believes in the ideals of a greater America can, can run for office at any level and win and absolutely make a difference. So thank you for your great service, Senator. It's really a pleasure to be with you. I also want to introduce someone else who's very special to me, and that is my precious Anna, who is sitting up here, the youngest, the youngest conservative woman in the audience. She's seven. She got out of an afternoon of school to be here, so she's really excited. Anna, will you stand up? And she's reading her book. Yeah, she's like. I'm embarrassing her. Anna, do you want to wave to everybody? No, she's going to keep. Oh, there she is. 
Uh, she is the third of our four children, and uh, she's here today because we have a little program at our school here in Fort Worth called Community Heroes, and Senator Burton is her community hero. So this is part of her school project, too. So it's a very, very fun thing to have her to be able to be here as well. Uh, as the very generous introduction noted, my name is Brooke Rollins. I have been president and CEO of Texas's conservative free market think tank for the past 13 years, which is hard to believe. Uh, as Michelle mentioned, when I started, we had three employees based in San Antonio, Texas. And I had just come from Governor Perry's office. I was his policy director. And I had never even heard of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which tells you that we really had nowhere to go but up when I joined up with TPPF. Another great conservative woman by the name of Dr. Wendy Lee Graham, uh, who is Senator Graham's wife, our former U.S. Senator from Texas. She ran her own big agency in D.C. She was Ronald Reagan's favorite economist. Uh, she is still the chairman of our board after all these years, but she hired me 13 plus years ago. Uh, the organization was struggling. They weren't sure whether they were going to make it and said, we're going to give it one more shot. We're going to hire this young girl, uh, not much many years out of law school, uh, to come and see what she can do. And by the grace of God, frankly, uh, 13 years in, we now have 56 employees. We just completed a 45,000 square foot, six-story building, one block from the capital of Austin at the corner of 9th and Congress, and have certainly become uh, one of the nation's great voices in what free markets and limited government and prosperity can do for those least fortunate. And that really is the greater story of Texas, I think. Uh, I'm so pleased to be here. I want to talk uh, just about a couple, few things. First, give you a little bit of my background and why I'm so passionate about these issues. Uh, second, to talk a little bit about Texas and what Texas has done and been able to show, again, how free market policies not only help those at one end of the socioeconomic ladder, but most importantly, help those at the lowest end of the ladder and why it's so important, which is probably a lot of why you are all here today, too. And then the third thing I want to talk about is what this looks like moving forward and what we all must do as we're working to save our country. Uh, I was born in a, and raised in a tiny town south of here called Glen Rose, Texas. How many of you are Texans, by the way? Almost the whole audience? No. Oh, no. We've got a lot from out of state. Well, Glen Rose is your quintessential, like Connie from Banchetti. Yeah. Uh, I am from Glen Rose, population 1,200. I graduated with 29 in my class from Glen Rose High School. And when I went off to Texas A&M, I was going to the far side of the world because everyone else in my small town was staying in my small town. I was raised by a single mom. Uh, we had a flower shop on the square in Glen Rose, Texas. She had my two sisters and myself where really she was raising and, and struggling but did an amazing job every day in providing an incredible environment uh, under which we grew up and all of us headed off to A&M after we graduated. But most importantly, other than being an amazing mom, she was the first Republican mayor of tiny Glen Rose and then the first Republican county commissioner of tiny Somerville County. So we started very young in my family really trying to understand not only as a small business owner, uh, but as a struggling single mother trying to raise three children on her own while she's building her business, but also the importance of getting involved in your community and, get, and giving back. And, you know, I have such, such important memories of, you know, dethorning roses and blowing up Malar balloons and delivering to them to all my friends in Glen Rose. 
of the importance of hard work. Uh, and I also remember specifically lots of conversations about how no matter from where you come or who you are, that you absolutely can make such a difference in the world. And even in my tiny little bubble in Glen Rose and my tiny little uh, family unit in Glen Rose, and, and it still sticks with me today. And it's really, it's really encouraging to know and to understand, but also drives my work every single day that the world that my mom taught us about, that no matter, again, who you are from where you come, that you can absolutely make a difference and make the world a better place drives us today. One of my sisters is a vice principal of a huge San Antonio public school, middle school, uh, right outside of San Antonio, and she takes that to work with her every day and helping her kids. Uh, my third sister is a professor here at TCU, uh, teaching leadership in the Energy MBA program. And, and again, all three of us, I think, are such a great example. So many of your stories as well of how fantastic this country is, how incredible the opportunities are, but how important it is to preserve it for the next generation. And when I started at the Texas Public Policy Foundation 13 years ago, you know, again, we were a little bitty group. No one had really ever heard of us. But I knew, first of all, that the way that government goes, no matter where you are in the world, it's always going to work to take away your freedom and to take away the liberty and to chip away at our individual opportunity. And that if someone doesn't stand up and say no more, uh, then it will go unabated. And the America that we all knew and grew up in will not be the America that we are trying to preserve for future generations. So when I had the opportunity to jump into the Texas Public Policy Foundation and build it into something bigger than I could have imagined and hiring the most extraordinary minds in the country to come work with us and join us in this fight uh, for our country, I, I never would have guessed where we would be today. But where we are today is really important. And I want to just run through a couple of important statistics, especially for those of you who are from outside Texas. You know, 10 plus years ago, we were still a fairly small organization, but growing. But the story of Texas wasn't that much different then than the stories of other big states like California and New York and Illinois. We all had about the same job growth. We all had roughly the same economic opportunity. We all had about the same poverty rate. We all had you know, roughly the same demographics. But when you look at the two courses that the states have taken over the last decade, you see the states of California and New York and Illinois going the way of Washington, D.C., which is higher taxes, which is bigger government, which is building the so-called the so safety net, which isn't really helping anyone. It's just pulling more people down into poverty. And then you see Texas, and you see Texas having gone the way of what the American founders believed and understood when they wrote the Constitution and founded this country, that a government that is less and that a government that is governed by the people under a self-governance model could provide a better life and prosperity for all. And in 10 years, here is where we have come in Texas. Texas is now the nation's largest manufacturing export state. We have almost 1,000 people a day moving here from across the country. We are now number two in the nation for most Fortune 500 companies right behind New York, but we're only one behind New York we're about to pass. California has now moved into third. Income inequality is actually better in Texas. We are at the very top of the economic freedom index for North America. We have been the nation's export leader for 13 years in a row. 
We have an incredibly diversified economy. When you read the New York Times or anyone else that's trying to you know, beat down on the Texas model of governance, what they won't tell you is that our economy is diversified. It is not all about oil and gas. And in fact, we just passed California in technology exports. Our unemployment rate has been at or below the national average for 100 months, 104 months. We're considered the best place in the country to do business, according to Chief Executive Magazine, the best place to make a living, according to MoneyRates.com. And, and I think one of the most telling statistics, there are two that I wanted to leave for last. The first is this. Since the Great Recession began in 08, Texas has created 53% of the new jobs since that time. So put another way, Texas has created more jobs than every other state combined since the recession began. And how that translates into everyday life and, and what we all do in our work to save the country. Most importantly, when you look at California and you compare it to Texas, and this was the founder's great idea of the laboratories of democracy, by the way. California has increased their taxes by 52%. They have 52% higher taxes than we do here in Texas. Their government, not surprisingly, is 50% larger than our government is in Texas. But here's the, here's the most important statistic. And if you remember one thing today, and you go home and you're talking to your friends and you're trying to make the case of, of why we need to fix America, it's this. In Texas, we have 47% less people living in poverty than does California. So all of those higher taxes, all of that extra government, all of that we're going to take from one group to give to another group to help them to a better life, it doesn't work. And we've never seen an actual in-person case study than what we've seen in Texas and the state of California over the last decade. And that has been the great blessing of my work, because every day, this is what we do. We work with Senator Burton, we work with our governor, we work with our, all of our leaders, all Republican, we'll work with everybody to make the case that we have to continue keeping government small so that people can flourish and that prosperity will reign. And that's the great blessing of what I get to do every single day. Let me just close with this, and I know I have one more speaker, and, and I know we, we all would love to take questions. What does this mean moving forward? And, and I think this is an important discussion to have, uh, because Texas is really what the rest of the country will soon be. And here's what I mean by that. What we have here in our state is a preview of the American future from a demographic perspective. And I think Crystal may have talked a little bit about this. In Texas, we have a proportionately declining Anglo population. We have a proportionately increasing minority population. We have ethnic diversity. We have diversity of faith. And we have diversity of origin. And if we as conservatives cannot persuasively make the case to these changing demographics, then we will lose. But I am so encouraged, and what we've shown in Texas is that we can successfully make that case. In our last election, we had more Hispanics vote for our candidates than ever in the history of Texas. We had 51% of Hispanics vote for our governor and our lieutenant governor in the last election. 
51%. If you keep up with this, you know that that's more than twice what Mitt Romney was able to pull in in the last presidential election. Women the same. Women voted in larger blocks for our conservative leaders in Texas than at any time in the history of our elections in Texas since we've been keeping track. The case that less government, more opportunity, and that freedom is what will truly lift people to a better life does not a specific message for the Anglo population or for the male population. It's for every population. But we have a lot of work to do, and we've got to get out there, and we've got to do it. Margaret Thatcher said that in order to win the election, you have to win the debate. And I'm so glad that you all are here today as we all work together to win that debate. Thank you so much. Wow, I think we're all ready to move to Texas, aren't we? <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, well, I want to thank all of you this morning. You gals set up the topic I'm going to talk about uh, very, very well. Now, I don't think you need a trigger warning here for what I'm going to say, but if my title says that I'm going to talk about pushback on political correctness, uh, maybe I'm going to say something that would be politically incorrect. You think that might happen? <laughs> okay, so... One of the points I want to make and one of the opening concepts I want to put on the table is th that if in the name of equal rights we take away people's essential liberties, have we helped them or hurt them? If in the name of social justice we take away their essential liberties, then we have left them worse off than anything that we claim to do for them. And if in the name of women's equality or women's rights, we take away people's essential liberties, then in the long haul, we have, not, uh, we have done everyone, including the next generation of women, great harm. Now, you have at your places, you should have everyone on your seat a cart. And make sure you have it in front of you because you can't value what you do not understand. So you should have cards on, the, on your places that look like this. There should be two trees on that card, and I want you to have those in front of you. And we are going to fly now, so stay with me. So you have uh, trees, two trees. One of them's dead and one of them's alive, right? Okay, that is the different, folks, between two sets of ideas. One set of ideas takes you to liberty, and the other set of ideas brings death and tyranny and problems. Now, the main point I want you to make or understand here today is that you can have whichever fruit you want, but you can't have the fruit of liberty from the roots of bondage and tyranny. And you can use this card to explain to people why your value system and what you're trying to promote, it brings goodness for everyone in the process of, of promoting liberty. The other side of that card, we're going to go through real quick, and the most important line on that for you today, there's about 100 speeches on that card, and we don't have time to go through them all. So look at the bottom. There's a, there's a statement that says, people who live in liberty, what does it say? Think differently than people who live in bondage. First of all, you could say that people who live in liberty think. If we just put a period there, that distinguishes you from the rest of the population, right? 
People, you have to think in order to live in liberty. Tyranny just happens because there's always a tyrant out there who will want to spend his time and effort to push his worldview over on everybody else. So if you're going to preserve your future and preserve your right to make a choice, then we are really the people who have preserved choice, even though that word has been distorted. So one of the main things we're going to talk to you about today is an understanding of this process that is happening behind us. It is called the dialectic process. That's the proper name for it. Now, how many of you know about Colbert? You know Stephen Colbert, right? Okay, now back on his very first presentation of the Colbert Report, that was on October 17th, 2005, he uses a word, he says, the, the word he uses is called truthiness. Now, do you know what truthiness is? He says it's something that seems like truth. It's the truth we want to exist. Now, the American Dialectic Society named Truthiness the 2005 Word of the Year, and they gave it a definition. What one wishes to be the truth, regardless of the facts. Do you know anybody like that? Do you run into those people? It's a utopian idea of an impossibility. You know, it, it, it can never happen. This ideal world they're talking about that they're using to pit against whatever you're saying is totally unrealistic. It's never happened and it's never worked. And in our seminars, we actually teach you what if you had to promote an idea that's failed every time in the past? What would you do? I mean, think about it. If you had to promote an idea that is totally flawed in every portion of the idea, wouldn't you have to dumb down the culture? Wouldn't you have to make it where people are so mindless with entertainment and data and constant activity and constant noise that they never have time to think? And would you want them to know history? Because if they know history, they might find out that the idea has never worked before. So we have a uh, situation going on in our culture that's called social engineering, and you all have lived through it, whether you, most of you are very well informed and understand this, uh, that social engineering is planned. Now think about this. Is engineering something that just happens? Do we have any engineering majors? Wow, that surprises me. Okay, but engineering doesn't just happen. It is planned. And so social engineering is planned because you have to, in order to change the culture, you have to change the way people speak. And you have to change the way they speak to change the way they think. And when you change the way they think, you change the way they speak. You see how that goes round and round and round? So back to uh, Stephen Colbert talked about truthiness. It's also is talked about in Orwell's 1984 when he talks about the uh, ministry of truth. But what is the ministry of truth? Does anybody know? Was it really truth? No, it was truthiness. It was really the propaganda department. Okay, so it was there to make whatever they wanted to be true that day to be true. It was there, they called it the department of truth. Okay, now, so beware, whenever a bill is labeled something, okay, when we, when we look at the Paperwork Reduction Act, do you think you get less paperwork? Okay, the label is not always the same as the content. So the Department of Truth is there to manufacture truth and get the masses to believe. It's the truth becomes whatever serves the state on that particular day. So what I want you to think about 
is that if you have the ability to see the trick, we call it sleight of mind, because it's a sleight of mind that is being perpetrated upon us to get us to redefine words and to use the words. Now, where do you think these politically correct uh, police came from? You hear about that, right? The politically correct people say, oh, you can't say that. Oh, please don't say that. And they create a fear in the culture that you'll get made fun of, right? Some of you are here. You have been made fun of, okay? You know when they attack the messenger, that means that the message is so good they can't attack the message. So all they have left is to belittle you. All they have left to do is to say, well, you don't even have the right to speak. And they plug their ears and walk away or try to push you into a corner to, to, to limit speech. See, freedom of speech is something that applies everywhere that the Constitution applies. But free speech sounds similar, right? Sounds like speech. Sounds like freedom of speech, but free speech is where they try to limit it into what you can say in certain zones and in certain places. And that in itself is taking away your essential liberties of your constitutional rights. So you have to learn how to defend that because your liberty is only as good as your ability to defend it. Now, H.L. Uh, Macon said the most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself. That includes women, folks. That meant mankind, okay? But the point is, if you're able to think things out for yourself, then you're a threat to the other people around you. And if you'll just go along to get along and be quiet and, 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 and not create waves, then, you know, you can, you can uh, uh, be received in certain circles. Now, John Dewey said, the children who know how to think for themselves spoil the harmony of the collective society, which is coming. In other words, he thought it was inevitable. Was he right? Yeah. And where everyone would be interdependent. So you have been raised in a culture of, of where there's a different normal. There's a new normal that has been set. And this new normal, the problem is, it doesn't lead to liberty. Now, that takes us to our next handout. You should have in the center of your table a three-column chart. It says at the top of it, it says why liberty matters, and then it says understanding the, the language of the dialectic. There's at least four of those in the center of every table. If there's more of you, you're going to have to share. Um, if you like it, you may take it home with you. If you don't, please leave it for somebody who does. Okay, now, if you look across the top there, what you see is there's three columns. And the one on the left is the one that, um, that is basically the column where there is absolute right and wrong. These are the guys you want building your bridges. Okay, these are the people who still believe that two plus two equals four. These are the people that believe there are some things that are good and there are some things that are evil. And they will call it what it is. That left column is what in the Hegelian dialectic you would call the thesis column. Now, how many of you have studied the Hegelian dialectic in your classes? Wow. Okay, folks, it's being perpetrated upon you whether you have studied it or not. The dialectic process is the most important, the speaking dialectic is the most important language I have ever learned to speak. I do have linguistic training at the graduate level, but learning to speak the dialectic has unlocked the keys to our culture to me. Things that before seemed mysterious now make total sense.
because I understand the process and the methodology behind the scenes. Now, conservatives overall have been very good at content. We have really cared about the content of our messaging. That's called subject matter in education. But we have been tripped to the hilt through methodology because there's a language and method that leads to liberty, and it's the one on the left, whether you like it or not. And there's a language and method that leads to bondage and tyranny, and that's the one on the right, whether you like it or not. So as conservatives, when we use the language and method of tyranny, even if we have the best content in the world, we are still unwittingly promoting tyranny. Now, this may be a concept that some of you have never thought about, because I was kind of raised that methods were neutral. And so whatever you cared about content, but when I saw that your methodology enforces or negates your subject matter, then that makes Saul Alinsky all make sense. Now, how many of you know about Saul Alinsky and Rules for Radicals? Okay, you have it used against you all the time. We do all-day events where we put up all 12 steps, and we go through and we learn what they are. And I've actually had a trained community organizer come in and try to take down one of my meetings in inner-city Philadelphia. I mean, this guy was loaded for bear emotionally. He did not have physical weapons on him, but he was sharp. And he came in and he was going to disrupt our meeting and he stood and he started into his Marxist language. The people were so, the people in the room were so upset, they started asking me, do we, do we need to call the police? Should we call the police? And there were people running out the back that were going to go call the police. And I'm like, don't you dare call the police. I mean, please, this is the best thing that ever happened. He gave me a teaching moment that I could not have paid for. And I disarmed him with words because what was he there to do? but to disarm me with words. He considered my ideas so threatening that they, had to, they, they put him through a training course to come and take down the meeting. Now, folks, when you understand this dialectic process, then you are no longer its victim, and, what, and you are no longer also prey to go ahead and further it unwittingly. See, I always assume good motives until I find out otherwise. But we have many people thinking they're promoting liberty, but they're using the language and method of tyranny. And in the process, they're raising another generation of really people who are prone to socialism and don't even realize it. That's going on in our churches, that's going on our homeschool curriculum, and even our Christian schools. So if you will look at this chart, you'll see the language on the left is the thesis column. A thesis means you take a position. The language in the middle is the what if, let's question. Maybe, how do we know? Could we be sure? What if? Let's consider the possibility. You know that, let's have the conversation. This is language you hear a lot. This is the let's dialogue, dialogue means two words. Let's, let's bring in other ideas and let's go to consensus. And then on the the third column is the consensus column. It's based on relativism. The only absolute is that all things are relative. And it's basically with the idea of saying that your ideas can be then reduced to an opinion. Now, they bring the best economic possibilities to the state of Texas or to wherever they're used. Every place in the history of the world that the principles of liberty have been, been applied to economics. You have the greatest prosperity and the greatest opportunity for women that you have anywhere in the world. 
And so we should not be ashamed of those. We should not apologize for these ideas. These are the ideas that have the answers instead of the problem. So when you look at an idea, you have to look at what are the consequences of that idea because every idea has a consequence and every definition has a destination and a worldview built into the, de to the definition. So that's why you have to challenge the premises. So let's, uh, let's see here. Let I actually set my, uh, set my stopwatch. So I, okay, I'm right at, uh, give me one, one second and I will finish. So let's look at, a, at one of these linguistic tricks. You hear about smaller government. I'm for smaller government, right? Is smaller government really limited government? Is it jurisdictional? Is it really, does that mean it's constitutional government? Or you just want to kind of shrink the amount of spending on it? There's a lot of other ones we could go through, even as simple as a word like better. When the politician says, I'm here to make the world a better place, well, you better find out what better is. When they talk about hope and change, the word change is part of this dialectic process, and it has a meaning, and you need to force those definitions. So if you will have the courage to go and to force definitions in your classes, in your, your campus meetings, and everywhere else, you will make a huge difference in what you're doing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, we have some time for questions. If you wouldn't mind, give your name and uh, your school if you're a student so our speakers can know who's uh, asking you the question. You can go to one or all three. Come on. <laughs> Don't be that scary. <laughs> I have a, a question for uh, Dr. And who are you? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm Emma Battle. I'm from Salem College, which is in North Carolina. And I have a question for, is it Dr. Marsha? You can call me Marlene. Dr. Marlene, Marlene. okay. Yeah. Um, I noticed that you talked about how conservatives have seen the methodology of our argument uh, twisted in recent decades. How do you see us retaking that um, since we do have the content to back up our argument? Okay, the first thing is to recognize it. So you have some materials now really circulating heavily in the conservative uh, uh, movement at all levels, trying to take Saul Alinsky's methodology and say they can be applied to patriotism or to freedom or to conservatism. And most of those methodologies break down essential liberty by the very use of, by their very use. They use deceit, they use uh, belittling, and they are set up in order to destroy. They're not something that builds. And so we have to be about building something. And you know, my mother used to say, well, what does it take more character? The guy who spent all summer building the house and sawing the boards and putting them, you know, putting in the nails and working on doing that, or the guy who walks by with a match and just torches the house and burns it down. And so we can't just be burning down. We have to be the ones who build and build on strong ideas. Thank you. Hi, my name is Amber Athey. I'm a student at Georgetown University, and uh, I have a question for all three of you. What is the number one liberal policy position that you're most concerned about right now? That's a great question. Well, for me, it's, you know, you watch the debates, uh, which I'm assuming everyone's watching, and, and it was astonishing 
that the Democrats actually have a couple of candidates that in their opening remarks actually talk about, as if it's normal, complete redistribution of wealth, uh, entire shutting down of the energy industry, starting with coal, but after coal, oil's next, and after oil, natural gas is next. Uh, it, it is such extreme socialism slash communism, and that's good or bad. I mean, our, our side has to be able to counter that and be able to articulate why giving everyone a handout and redistributing wealth uh, is not only so un-American, you can't even wrap your brain around it, but it also sinks all boats. And that's what Reagan was able to do. He was able to, when many said he was um, you know, radical uh, and that his ideas were crazy, that he wanted to take tax rates from 70% to 28% and wanted to shrink the government and wanted to get rid of agencies. You know, the establishment, the media said he was crazy. But what he was able to do, and he talked about this later, was he never approached it necessarily as a fight with the other side. How he approached it was, planting his flag in the sand and saying, this is what we have to do to get this country back on track and then persuading people to come along with him. And I've heard said before, I think it's so smart that you turn on C-SPAN and you can almost automatically always tell, Connie's probably heard me say this before, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. If it's a Democrat, you have a beautiful picture of a family, maybe a grandma and a grandpa, and if it's a conservative or Republican, it's a pie chart or a graph with numbers you know, crossing and, and lines going like this, and we're not gonna win any debates, we're not gonna win any hearts and minds, more importantly, unless we're able to connect the dots between freedom and a better life for you and your children. And I think we've worked really hard on that in Texas, and I think that's why you've seen Texas move in a certain direction. But for me, that's the most uh, frightening thing, is that it's there, but I think we can counter it. We just have to make sure that we're countering it in the right way. Excellent, excellent. Um, for me, the, the issue that's closest to my heart and that worries me a lot is um, cronyism, uh, it, we don't allow the free market to be the free market. And um, so, you know, as Brooke just mentioned, taking from some and giving to others, um, we're starting to do that more and more in terms of businesses as well. Um, I'm a marketing major, I'm a business student, I understand, you know, um, entrepreneurship, what, you know, that the market is what drives a product or service, whether it should, whether a company will be successful is the market to determine, not government. And unfortunately, um, you know, you hear legislators on both sides of the aisle say that they, you know, they hate this cronyism and yet we have legislators on both sides of the aisle that participate in it constantly. Um, we say we believe in the free market and yet they're far too happy to uh, take money from your pocket and give it to a certain big business. Um, but that's not the government's job. The, uh, it's the free market's job. And once we start doing that, we're giving to you know certain businesses, some bureaucrats in Austin or in DC decide that um, you know we're gonna take money from certain people People and then give it to certain businesses, we no longer have an, uh, a level playing field. 
um, right? Th this one company that we've uh, incentivized with taxpayer dollars, all of a sudden, um, they're at a better place. They can sell their product or their service for less money than somebody else for no other reason than the government deciding we you know we want to help them more so if, if it's one thing I'm going to do while I'm in office I'm going to get through everybody's head what the free market really is and let the market do its job get the government back to you know providing the basic services that we need to do and truly get out of the way so that people not only can have jobs I think too much of the time and it was great we want people to have jobs but when we when we when we say um, oh we're creating jobs by giving money to certain businesses, what we're doing again is hurting those other businesses, and we're also forgetting that what America is about is entrepreneurship. That's what we want to promote. We want you to be able to start your own business, um, you know, not just to have a job. We want we want you to be creative and and be as successful as you want, or not to be as successful as you want, right? So. Anyway, that's my passion right now and what worries me the most, frankly. Okay, and what I would say with that is along the same vein is the social justice issue. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. The, uh, when so compassion is redefined to be government redistribution of wealth, right. in right. other words, you know, one of my quotes is that the first act of compassion is an accurate definition, an accurate definition of compassion. If you haven't read The Law by Bastier, how many of you read The Law by Bastier? Oh, folks, okay, you got to get the, it's only 87 pages, you can read it between class, okay? You know, and so, um, get in the habit, how many of you read a book a day? Besides your schoolwork, when you're in school, college level, book a day plus college, okay? Somebody very wise told me that years ago and it's paid off, okay? Uh, so, social justice issue. Keep Great, thank you, ladies. Next. Um, so my question is for you your name? Um, Brooke Rollins. My name is Katie Lingefelter. I attend Texas Tech University, but I'm originally from New Mexico. Um, and so my question is, in New Mexico, the economy and the employment rate is not nearly as strong, and the statistics that you were giving, um, you can't really argue with. And so some of the arguments I've heard whenever people are talking about how strong the Texas economy is, is that Texas just has better resources or there's just more to work with. And so why do you think that the vast majority of Americans or these other states aren't picking up on what Texas is doing to better their own economy? Or do you think it's just them being ignorant and trying to find reasons to say, well, Texas has this? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, by the way, we're giggling, so I thought your name was Brooke Rollins, too. Yeah, <laughs> you said Brooke Rollins. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, I didn't know there was another one out there. Um, it's great, that's awesome. Uh, so I, I think that's a great point. From my perspective, we get it every day, and it's especially true uh, in the last presidential election when Rick Perry ran, and then in this presidential election when Rick Perry and Ted Cruz ran, Texas, because the, the model of governance that has come about in the last decade plus has been so successful that it's hard to counter it from the left other than just to say, well, that's because Texas has all these resources, and well, that's just because Texas is so big, and well, that's just because Texas has its own electric, electric grid. You know, come down. I, I read one New York Times article, by the way, that said that's just because Texas has great weather. And I said, oh, have you actually been here in the summer? Yeah. 
or really from about March until about October. I think it was 98 here a week ago. <laughs> anyway, it is clearly not because of the weather. But, um, but there's no question. And what I have seen, and this is another reason I'm so encouraged, right now in America, and this has happened over the last five to six years, we have more red states, meaning more red legislatures and more red governors than we've ever had as a whole in the history of the country, meaning the people closest to their leaders in the states are actually voting for our policies more than most of the states on the, on the two coasts that are going more blue. And so you see a country that is waking up, that is seeing the example that is Texas, uh, and there are some of the other states that are moving towards a more conservative uh, governance model. And you see uh, governors and uh, state houses and state senates and legislatures who are trying to emulate that. And even countries, two weeks ago in our building in Austin, we hosted the uh, Great Britain's Attorney General, that's not his name, but, but basically he's number four in line to be Prime Minister, one of the top leaders in England. And he came to sit down with us for an entire day in Austin, he wanted to talk specifically about criminal justice reform, but even bigger than that, he wanted to talk about the tax structure and the school structure. And certainly we have issues that we could spend a whole day talking about public education, but all in all, relative to other big states, Texas has succeeded in almost every metric. And so uh, when you hear pushback, and especially you see states, New Mexico is actually making some pretty good strides under Susana Martinez. Uh, she has a tough time because the state is uh, very set up under a welfare system, and it's hard to break that, especially when her legislature is still blue. But she's making progress, and some of these other states are making great progress, too. So I think we just have to keep telling the story. And this presidential election, hopefully with some great articulate spokespeople like Ted Cruz, uh, like some of the other guys that are in the fight, Marco Rubio and a few others, that believe in free markets and believe in less government and believe in opportunity and then can point to the Texas model, uh, we can see some progress in that arena. Do you want to mention, I don't know, Brooke, oh, they're probably an all-time legislature in New Mexico, don't you? Yeah. Right. So something that we forget about a lot is, you know, here in Texas, we meet, at the legislature meets every other year. So, so it, it, I'm telling you, a big part of it, of our success, I think, is that alone. We don't meet all the time. I mean, think about it. If we met, it's just what's happening in D.C., right? I mean, what else are you going to do but think about more, way, more bills to come up with that takes more of your freedoms and more of your liberties, right? So, we, you know, we just go down there for six months, and we're done to, for another year and a half. And so that's a huge part of why we are as successful as we are, I think. I really do. My name is Stevie Knight, and I'm an intern at the National Center for Policy Analysis. Um, and this question is actually for uh, both um, our senator and Ms. Rollins. This year, in or in the recent years in Texas, school choice has died in the House of Representatives in Texas. What's standing in the way for the, the for this policy to be successful in Texas when so many other states have adopted it? Uh, so our organization was founded 26 years ago. I've only been there half of it, but 26 years ago on the issue of school choice and tort reform. Uh, school choice has been at the top of the agendas of our governors, um, starting with Bush and then through the 14 years of Perry. Uh, and for a lot of reasons, we had, you know, a, it, it hasn't passed. And in the meantime, while we, to your point, while we've worked so hard, I think 29 other states have now some form of school choice, uh, 29 others, and Texas 
has a hard time even getting a bill out of committee. Uh, I will say this, we have a lieutenant governor who is passionate about this issue today, Dan Patrick, and, and last session, for the first time in more than a decade, a bill actually left the Senate, thanks to our wonderful senators, but then it died in the Texas House. You have a political um, issue when you are in a big state like Texas, a very diverse state, um, a very rural state in many respects, where you are asking uh, Anglo-Republicans to vote against their uh, superintendents and their teachers. We have to change that messaging, but that's basically what the messaging is today, uh, in order to help children who are not even their constituents. And so we are digging deep and we are preparing for next session in a big way. Uh, even in Texas where we don't really have teachers unions, but we do have very strong teachers groups, uh, it is a very difficult um, issue to move forward when you have literally thousands of teachers who will come and march on the Capitol. And it's interesting because my sister, as I said, is, is a vice principal in a big public school, and, and the amount of messaging and that is simply wrong that you know we're out to destroy the public schools and we're we're working to gut you know all the progress we've made in public schools and we hate public schools for me and i think for the movement it's exactly the opposite from my perspective the way you fix public schools is you introduce competition so these really bad schools have to fight to keep their students because right now i have school choice because i can send my children to a private school because i can afford it so there's a certain subset that has school choice but only because we can write a check the rest of the communities, including the minority communities especially, are so hard hit by this and their representatives are not representing them. And this is one yet another issue where conservatives can come in and make the case for markets and competition and a better life and lifting those up to a better future. Uh, and, and I do think, while it's been difficult, I think we'll get through it next session. I think Texas will lead the way on this and I think if we can move it in Texas, uh, we have so many children that are in the state of Texas. I think we have 10% of the total public school population is in our state. Uh, then that's going to reverberate across the country. Do you think it'll be full school choice in Texas? That is what we will work for. Uh, Nevada just passed the first universal uh, school choice bill in the country. And we're working very closely with their lieutenant governor. Uh, our lieutenant governor and their lieutenant governor are very close friends. And we're actually going to bring their lieutenant governor in to speak to the legislators in a couple of months. And so that's the goal. And will we get there is a good question. Uh, we have a house in Texas that is not as aligned with free markets and competition as you would think, even though we're in Texas. But we're working on it. Everything, Everything Brooke just said. <laughs> Got time for one last question. Um, everything that you all have said is exactly what we need because it's what we were founded on, and it is, as Marlene said, what get, keeps us having liberty. But what all of these young women as students, there, there is a, such a force to completely neuter all of this That's in right. that we never should be having federal education standards. It's totally unconstitutional. All of that should be at the purview, the jurisdiction of the state, so that if you really had local control and Common Core or C-Scope, whatever they decide is the latest name for it, it is going against 
everything they're teaching, and it's teaching all of you all that we're global citizens, like Obama said he is. It's taking away sovereignty, statehood. It's learning that people have no borders and that workers go everywhere in the world for a global workforce. That's what they're putting on our students, and we need to be fighting that there should be local control of education standards, not these federal ones. And the governors bought into that, and we are now reaping a very bitter harvest, and they even were Republican governors, such as Mike Huckabee. So we got to fight that we need the freedom of having schools back being under our local control, because it nullifies. They're churning out students that don't believe in any of this. So. That's why I'm saying these tentacles are everywhere that are trying to destroy everything Texas is. Ladies, do you have any comments on that? I mean, I, I went to work for Ronald Reagan because we were going to abolish the Department of Education. Ha. <laughs> huh. Well, I, I, to, to that point, uh, you know, the numbers are what the numbers are. And if Texas goes blue in a presidential election, then we will not elect another Republican in our lifetimes. And the other side understands that's just the way the numbers work. If Texas goes blue, you can win every other swing state, the eight swing states that we sort of put our whole presidential election on, and it won't matter. And so the other side understands this. Uh, they came in in the last election uh, and I think had a couple hundred people on the ground um, spent millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, actually didn't get anywhere. In fact, as I mentioned, we had big, bigger and better numbers than ever before come out to vote and to vote across demographics. But to your point, whether it's Common Core, whether it's the EPA, whether it's the Transportation Board, whether it's the taxing, the IRS, whatever it is, there is a force at work uh, to absolutely turn this country into something our founders could have never envisioned and they understand ground zero is Texas. And if they can flip this state, then the rest is, as they say, history. Uh, let me close with another Thatcher quote. This seems very, very applicable to this group. The, the girls all got a book on Thatcher. Did they? Well, yes. that's perfect. So, so she said the reason she even got into politics was because of the forces of good versus evil. And she believed that in the end, good would, would win. And that's why she was in politics. And I know that for me is as well. Uh, but for good to triumph, we all have to stay in the battle. So thank you all so much. Three terrific Texas ladies. What an inspiration you are to our students and young women, to all of us. Thank you so much for joining us today.